Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You know, uh, Lisa, one of the things I like to do when we talk about interest rates, for example, is always think of context, right? Because we're worried about whether the Fed will raise interest rates a quarter or, you know, how many interest rate increases will we get this year? Do you know that back in 1979, um, Fed funds rate was 11%? And it wasn't even done then because in 1981, I remember, I think it was in that summer, the June that summer, they were 20%, believed 20%. Do you think that would be a good time to buy a bank? Well, I think that it was for George Gleason. He's our next guest. He's chief, chief executive officer and chairman of the Bank of the Ozarks based in uh, Little Rock. In See Arkansas. how we did that? Thank anyway, you, sir. Thank you so Thanks much for, for being joining here. us. Thank yeah, you. It's so, great to be here. You know, it seems like a very different era from back then. Well, that's we what I, I want to. Yeah. Maybe we could just start off. I'd, I'd like maybe just for you to tell a little bit of the story of the bank. And as I said, 1979, 11% Fed funds, and we're worried about quarter percent increases. Well, uh, that's true. And of course, Paul Volcker was uh, at the Fed and was uh, pursuing the uh, quest to slay inflation. Uh, by all possible means. So uh, within my first two years as chairman, CEO, and majority owner of Bank of the Ozarks, the Fed funds rate did go from 10 to 20%. And and uh, the interesting thing about that was that uh, we were in a state that had a constitutional usury law then that limited our interest rate we could charge on loans to 10%. Needless to say, we were doing a lot of investments and not much lending in those days and still managed to have record profits that year, uh, both those years, actually. Well, and, and partly probably because of net interest margin, right? I mean, you could just generate so much from your loans uh, from just client activity. And I have to wonder how that contrasts with today uh, when we're facing uh, pretty low rates for the foreseeable future, regardless of uh, de minimis interest rate hikes, uh, you know, how optimistic are you? Well, we're very optimistic about our situation. Of course, our net interest margin is uh, close to 5%. The quarter just ended. Our net interest margin was 4.99%. So we very carefully built all of our lines of business over the 38 years that I've been chairman, chief executive officer to, to generate uh, really good returns, better than average returns, uh, while we have much better than average industry credit quality. Well, I have to wonder how you're doing. And I do know uh, that uh, there was some controversy over your bank uh, at the Sone conference when Carson Block of Muddy Waters uh, labeled your firm as the big short, their big short, their big idea, which failed spectacularly, I should say, with your firm gaining about 30% uh, the shares uh, in, the, in the following year. So people who followed that advice would have been uh, badly burned uh, if they had tried to go against the momentum in your shares. But, but part of the rationale was that uh, you were investing a lot in bigger cities and real estate and that this could potentially be a problem. Are you still investing in that? And what's your rationale? Well, absolutely. We're a commercial real estate lender uh, first and foremost, and, and we've done that all of my career. And uh, our clients include probably 85 of the 100 largest real estate developers in the country. 
we do very uh, high-quality projects with very sophisticated, high-quality sponsors, but we do those transactions at very low leverage. The Real Estate Specialties Group, uh, which handles all of our large national commercial real estate lending and accounts for about 68% of our non-purchase loans, loans other than those loans we've acquired in acquisitions, the weighted average loan to cost, if we fully advance every one of those loans, is 49%, and the weighted average loan to appraised value is 42%. Obviously, a commercial real estate loan that you're at 42% loan to value and 49% loan to cost has an incredibly different risk profile than a commercial real estate loan at 80 or 85% loan to value and loan to cost. So we're very conservative. Um, and, and I think uh, when um, uh, that thesis was introduced at the uh, Sone Conference early in 2016, um, the guys had probably screened us and knew, wow, look at their commercial real estate concentration, look at their growth rates, they must be doing something very risky. Uh, but in fact, we've probably got the most conservative commercial real estate loan portfolio in the U.S. banking industry. The way that you described how uh, Carson Block may or may not have arrived at what at this conclusion, the, the very nature of that screening and the very nature of how markets have evolved, I'm wondering if you could just offer, as I think you're the fourth largest shareholder in the bank, uh, the bank makes no bones about your participation in its founding and running. I mean, that's uh, so there's a level of personal responsibility. And I'm wondering how that maybe even ties in with the map of where you locate. Well, there there is a great level of personal responsibility. And, and um, I see all of the uh, loans in the company above $10 million. Of course, uh, Dan Thomas, who runs our real estate specialties group for us, uh, sees all of those loans, and all those loans are approved by committee. Um, but th the culture that we've built over 38 years is far more important than uh, individuals. We have created a culture um, that is very conservative, very customer-centric, and very focused on excellence in all we do. Uh, for example, uh, on asset quality, in the 20 years we just celebrated today at, at uh, NASDAQ ringing the bell there, celebrated our 20th anniversary as a public company. And in that 20 years, there's not been a single year where our net charge-off ratio has equaled or exceeded the industry's average net charge-off ratio. We've beat the industry every single year for 20 years and beat them on average by 65%. So we're very conservative. And and to do that, it's not one person or a loan committee or two or three people. It is a culture that invades and, and pervades the entire company. So given the fact that you do have very high standards, you're expecting to increase your assets from about $20 billion uh, to $50 billion of assets probably over the next three years. Well, I would I would say that's an overstatement. And, okay. and of course, uh, we've made 15 acquisitions in the last eight years. So the pace of acquisitions, one can never predict. You don't know whether you're going to do an acquisition or not, because you have to find a transaction that makes sense and uh, reach agreement between a willing buyer and a willing seller. So if you exclude acquisitions, I would say it's more realistic to assume that we would grow from 20 billion to 50 billion over a five, six or seven year 
time frame apart from acquisitions. All right. So I imagine it's it's an interesting time right now. And I wish we could speak uh, for the next hour because, frankly, I have uh, so many questions about running a bank uh, in this current environment. And we didn't even get into the regulatory rollbacks and what that might do. I mean, there is so much. So unfortunately, uh, we have to, to leave it there. But we'll I have promise to come back. he'll give you his, the phone number. Please do. George Gleason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Truly a fascinating uh, story and, and a fascinating bank, really. Uh, Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Bank of the Ozarks in Little Rock, Arkansas. Since that Sone meeting, the shares gained more than 30% in the following year. Well, there is a new subprime boom, and here to tell us about it is Gabrielle Coppola. And uh, Gabrielle, you know, you are, I always, I didn't think of you necessarily just as someone who's interested in the credit, but also in the underlying manufacture of vehicles, you know, around the world. Can you just describe what you're trying to get at here in terms of the U.S. and the way we buy cars and what's happened? Because a lot of this has to do with the way people finance their automobiles. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, after the mortgage crisis, um, the housing sector wasn't a very healthy place for banks to play. Uh, But then there was also the rebound, the revival of the auto industry, helped, of course, by the, you know, bailout by the U.S. government. Car sales came booming back and um, people needed banks to finance that. And that created a huge opportunity. There was a huge credit expansion and we saw a huge um, credit expansion uh, for people with lower credit scores buying cars. Right. And we've heard a lot about how some of the uh, subprime auto loans that have been originated since the crisis have been souring at a faster pace uh, than many have expected. And that it's kind of created this spiraling effect where you had a lot of not only subprime auto loans, but you also had a lot of auto leases. So then the resale values are going down as the leases come up. And, you know, there's been a big issue here. But I really want to home in on two companies in particular, Santander, which is the leading uh, subprime auto loan uh, originator, as well as as Fiat Chrysler, which is thought of as sort of the third in the triumvirate of uh, vehicle manufacturers in the U.S. And how do they come to kind of join forces and how significantly uh, it has their partnership kind of created a lot of the subprime auto loans that we're looking at right now? Well, uh, again, when Chrysler was sort of coming back from the dead, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis, they needed a, a uh, they didn't have a captive finance arm anymore. And they needed one, just like you have Ford Motor Credit or GM Financial. Chrysler needed a, a partner to finance its car sales. And instead of, I think they didn't have the money to buy one, so they made this partnership with Santander. And I think one of the reasons uh, the head of sales for Chrysler at the time said he chose Santander because their expertise in automated decisioning and big data. So the idea that they could really um, use big data to kind of harness, get in on this boom um, speed up the process of Wait, buying hold cars. Hold on a second. Big mm-hmm. data meaning that they could they could use uh, less information from each borrower to more quickly originate loans, or big data to basically identify the credit quality. I think that more that's the idea. The analytics, data mining, being able to kind of uh, assess uh, people's credit quality in a more efficient way. And well, I mean, the reason the why process. I ask this in particular is because Santander in particular has been pinpointed as not verifying the incomes of a lot of the uh, people who uh, it lends to, right? Yes. And that is actually in my story. I talk about this settlement they had with attorneys general in Massachusetts and, and, and Delaware, where they paid $26 million. They, you know, they didn't they neither admit nor deny any wrongdoing. But if you read that settlement, it talks about what they're basically 
what they're accused of by the prosecutors is kind of looking the other way when there's very obvious signs of fraud. You know, when, when you get there's they had a group, they called them the fraud dealers, their internal audit system. There were dealers who were um, sending applications where someone would um, default, you know, on the very first payment. Or you find out that the car, they said the certain trim levels were a certain level that made the collateral bigger so that they could justify getting a bigger loan and put that person in that car. And it turned out that those were not true. So the, that's happening at the at the the real originator is the car dealer who's getting you in that car. Right. But they're saying Santander, you did not do your job in terms of having your due diligence to check that. And that issue came up again. This is separate, but when you know Moody's did a report earlier this year looking at uh, the ABS that Santander originates, they said they only checked Asset 8%. Asset-backed securities, which are Thank securities you. backed by these <laughs> Save me from jargon. Thank you. Um, they said, oh, we, did, we had this new data that came out under some new rule. You know, They were able to see more data and said, ah, Santander only checks 8% of the incomes in this subprime, this billion dollars of, uh, of subprime auto, ba- auto loans. Now, Santander will say that they have other criteria that they're using to check, and it's not just that. That's basically one of the things that they say. Uh, but that's the issue, and I think that's what people are uh, scrutinizing and what regulators are looking at. 8%. 8%. And that compares with Ally, which is another big um, that's, uh, auto uh, lender. That's GM. Old GM. Old GM. Yeah. yeah, yes. Now they're quite separate from GM, but right. they said, hey, you know, by the way, we check 65% of our incomes. And, and GM Financial also said we check about 65%. So how many vehicles, do you have any sense of how many or the proportion of Chrysler vehicles sold that relied on uh, Santander for financing? Well, that's actually, so the actual, it's kind of, so they have this partnership and it's been very hard for them to meet the the pennant. They wanted Santander to be doing like 64% of their, you know, Chrysler Capital. That's the brand of it. They wanted it by this time, by this year, it should have been 64%. It's 19%. So it's actually very low. So even though Santander is a very low proportion of Chrysler financing, Chrysler makes up a very a much more than half of the auto financing that Santander does. That That's goes, fascinating. Well, that I, goes back to that agreement that you described earlier, saying that maybe Fiat was not large enough to buy, or uh, Fiat Chrysler was not large enough to buy its own credit company, so they had to make, or they did make, this alliance with Santander. Right, and this was supposed to be, a, and it still is, I think Santander still wants it to be a, a big avenue for expansion and growth is Chrysler. And they're actually doing a lot of things, you know, they have a program to clean up uh, they're trying the new CEO, Scott Powell. They've actually fired 800 dealers yeah. across their network to clean so things up. So they're working up. at it. They're trying. They are okay. doing things, but this is still out there. Gabrielle Coppola, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, congratulations on an awesome story. Uh, it definitely takes a look, a deeper look at an issue that a lot of people have been uh, homing in on as a possible uh, problem. Gabrielle Coppola is an autos writer for Bloomberg News. Well, to learn more about what's going on with Blue Apron, we have an expert. Selena Wang is joining us now. She is our Bloomberg. I got to say, you're like the meal. You cover meal companies and uh, uh, delivery companies, but they're really tech companies, right? This is Blue Apron. What is going on? The stock was down as much as 12%. Right. I think you just hit on something that a lot of people say, you know, just because they sell orders digitally doesn't make it a tech company necessarily. This is a super cost intensive business. They have to source all the ingredients. They have to put it all together. These are really expensive ingredients, put them to fulfillment centers, deliver it to people. And this uh, Amazon 
Amazon trademark filing is just another kind of nail in the coffin for Blue Apron, as some investors would see it. I mean, Blue Apron already has all of these uh, financial issues, and now you have a behemoth that may be getting into the same business that it's in. Okay, so that may be getting into the same business, right? I mean, they filed a trademark application this is Amazon, for prepared right? food kits. This is Amazon.com. How soon, how quickly could they develop an actual business based on this filing? And second of all, do we have a sense of whether it really does directly overlap with Blue Apron. I mean, it does. It definitely sounds like it does. Right, right. So in the world of, uh, of these types of applications, there's kind of two categories. So there's one, which is we're already using this trademark for products, so you should consider our application. And the second one is we're planning to use this trademark for products, so you should... Uh, the, is we're planning to use this trademark for products, so you should consider our application. Amazon filed under the latter, which means they're planning to use it. Doesn't necessarily mean this is all going to go through. That is going to get approved. So that means that they're definitely looking at the business and they're considering it. Uh, no idea when they would actually start doing this. Why Why would they get into it? It's a crowded business that is uh, of dubious lucrativeness. Well, if we look at this Amazon Whole Foods deal, they were willing to put in, plop down billions of dollars to buy a grocery store business. Now, uh, food is incredibly important. It's a huge huge market. Amazon clearly wants to get into it. They have the brand. Now they have the distribution. They have the fulfillment centers with the Whole Foods acquisition. So you can think of all sorts of integrations to make something like uh, meal delivery actually pretty efficient for somebody like Amazon when they have so much um, backing and support on the back end and in terms of the physical locations. Have you heard anybody saying that uh, Blue Apron is now a buy at six? I mean, if well, you're talking about it, right, because nothing, the the deal was done, right? June 28th, the stock goes public at 10. They sold 30 million shares. And uh, stock is what? Trading at six and change. Uh, what, what, that doesn't necessarily mean they're, you know, throwing away all their strategic plans. They already had the money. They've got big cash flow. Um, they have a brand name. Uh, I'm just wondering, they've built infrastructure that is theirs. And I'm wondering, you know, you hear anybody saying anything like, well, no, they're a player. Remember what happened to Facebook? It came out, I think, at 35 and it was that whole thing with the NASDAQ and you know, people were furious, but it turned out that if you had held on, it was a good bet. Right. I mean, I don't think we can say for sure right now whether Correct. it's going to be a total flop or if it's going to succeed and get to Facebook scale. I mean, it's not like Amazon was buying, you know, the, the sharpest hack in the box in the sense that Whole Foods was facing competition when, I mean, in a way, this was great for Whole Foods to Are get out. Are you asking whether Amazon would consider buying Blue Apron? I don't think it would make a lot of sense for them at this point. I mean, they have Whole Foods. They could build their own Blue Apron-esque sort of business. But like, as you did say, it is quite cheap right now. I mean, Blue Apron does have the brand. That's true. They have, um, you know, people know that it's a quality product they're getting when they go to Blue Apron. But this is not a cheap product. And the type of customer that's going to Whole Foods is a very similar demographic as the type of customer that is going to Blue Apron, kind of this top 10% of, of income in households. It's not cheap. At what point does Amazon just have so much momentum because they already have the brand name? They're already associated with something uh, that many people view as quality and reliable and consistent. So they don't have to spend all this money on advertising like Blue Apron has, which has been the bulk of their 
revenue. Right, exactly. I mean, marketing and fulfillment centers had has been a huge reason why they've had net losses even as revenue has been growing. And you're right. I mean, Amazon with Amazon Prime, they already have kind of like an existing customer base and you can think of all sorts of ways where, you know, you order, you know, Amazon sort of meal delivery kit and shop at Whole Foods and you get extra Prime points and you this all kind of works together in ecosystem, makes it very easy to sign up and and get people to use whatever service they may come up with in the future. Zappos, that was what I was thinking of. Zappos was the shoe uh, business, and they let it have its own brand name, and it, everyone knows it's owned by Amazon, but it's let you know it's doing its own thing. Who knows? I wouldn't put anything past Amazon. Right. Well, I'm clearly a strategic vision that is not just confined to, uh, you know, what has happened. More like making it up well, into the future. I have to wonder how much this is related to the Whole Foods purchase. Well, you know, this did come around the same time, this patent application, this trademark application as a Whole Foods purchase. And I think that now that they have Whole Foods, they have so many, uh, a whole world of opportunities in the space of food um, to go forth with now that they have these physical locations and this brand. So retailers of all types are just cowering in the corners, hoping that uh, yeah. Amazon won't come after them. Uh, Selena Wang, thank you so much for joining us and for illuminating uh, what's going on today with Blue Apron shares, which have dropped as much as 12% following this trademark application for something that Amazon may just consider at some point in the future. Selena Wang uh, is a Bloomberg tech reporter, uh, and she joins us here at our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Well, here to help us define the polls about President Donald Trump is Ann Selzer, the president of Selzer & Company. They're based in Des Moines. They are a public opinion research firm. And uh, Ann, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Um, just uh, according to the po- a new poll, just 40 percent of Americans approve of the job that President Donald Trump is doing. Now, you are uh, this is the polling number that you've been able to uh, put together and analyze, correct? You're doing this for, for Bloomberg, for us. That's, that's right. We're the pollster for Bloomberg News, right. And maybe just explain how do you actually go about this polling and how does it vary so much between polls? Well, if, what, what we do is, is um, do a scientific survey of a randomly selected sample of a thousand people across the country uh, and make sure that that's a good cross-section of residents of the United States. And then we ask them a battery of questions. Some of these questions we've been asking since the inception of the poll in 2009. And um, that gives us a way to kind of track how things have changed and how things have stayed the same right. over time. So, you know, 2009 was the beginning of the Obama administration. So we had the highs and the lows of uh, that presidency. And uh, early in Obama's presidency, his uh, numbers were in the 50% and mid-50% range. So Donald Trump is beginning his presidency at a historic low. And there are some other polls out right now which are um, have a, a longer history that are saying this is the lowest for any president this early in his presidency. So, and let's talk about the latest survey that you just conducted on behalf of, of Bloomberg and what it says about uh, the state of the American consumer. There's some good news and there's some bad news. Yes. 
there, there is good news. There's optimism. Uh, there's good feeling as people take a look at job security very specifically, and people take a look at the value of their home. Uh, it's the highest numbers that we've seen for both of those since we've been asking those questions. And that's a very personal look at what's happening economically. Wait, but and we how long also, would that be going back to before the crisis or, or since the crisis? Um, we started asking those questions in December of 2012. Okay. So since the crisis. Okay. So, exactly. Go on. Um, but and and then a more general question about whether that people feel they are moving closer to their hopes for their career and finances, or moving farther away from their dreams. Now, 58% say that they're moving closer. That's as high as we've ever seen it. So you have this juxtaposition of feeling good about things and what's happening with them personally, and and yet awarding a low approval rating for the president. And so I kind of think about Jim Carville, who was an advisor to uh, President Clinton, who said, you know, when you see a turtle on a, on a fence post, it didn't get there by themselves, by itself. So you kind of think, well, what is it that's happening in the economy? And did it happen by itself? Or is Donald Trump having any leadership impact? It's just there's a little bit of a disconnect. There's a little bit of a dissonance between the goodness that people are feeling and not getting any attribution for the president who's leading this country. You know, and just to play devil's advocate, what if somebody said, look, Polls have been radically inaccurate for uh, the past few elections. And, you know, maybe this dissonance reflects the way that questions are being asked to get an unfavorable uh, opinion. Well, I would, I would take issue with the radically inaccurate. In fact, our polls have been highly accurate. We're rated among the most accurate uh, polling companies in of the 350 polling companies that have been ranked. And the fact of the matter is that we, we see remarkable consistencies. We see things only fluctuating uh, by a little bit. So it's not as though we suddenly got something very different. Um, you know, I, I think there is no way, given that we ask these questions the same way that they were asked of Barack Obama, to say that it's the wording of the question that is leading us to say that, that but Donald Trump's numbers are lower. That it, There's just no evidence that would support that claim. And uh, do the poll results indicate to you a polarized nation the way it is often described anecdotally? Well, what the poll results do tell us is that there's a there's a there's a marked difference in how Trump Trump voters are rating their president, which is they are sticking with him. Uh, there is a very strong majority who approve of the job that he's doing. Um, so that overall low rating is the people who did not vote for him, whether they didn't vote in that election at all or whether they voted for Hillary Clinton or for somebody else. What, what kind so, of number was, was that uh, coming up as that you described? The, the Trump voter number is in the high 80s. So there, that base that he has created is still saying that what they see him doing is what they hired him to do. And unrelated to Bloomberg, we did some focus groups earlier this year to ask exactly that question. Focus groups with exclusively Trump voters who said, look, we hired him so that he would create some havoc. And he's creating some havoc. And we're not going to like all of it, but it's that general approach that they were looking for. They were looking to shake things up. So while they might not agree with all of the specifics, the general idea of changing the way that the nation is governed, they were supportive of. 
Ann Seltzer, really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us and for conducting the poll, uh, which is really illuminating and a good look into some of the polarization within people's own opinions about what's going on right now. Ann Seltzer, president of Seltzer and Company based in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, she's sharing the results of uh, this broad-based poll on President Trump conducted for Bloomberg. It was a telephone poll of more than a thousand American adults. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.